This week's episode is brought to you by Aiken Promotions, who would like you to know that Tommy Tiernan is bringing his Under the Influence show to Dublin's Vicar Street. That's the Crow Park of Comedy, they say, uh, this January 2017. This new show from Bonafide and National Treasure, Tommy Tiernan, is all about heroism of everyday life, which ad- admittedly doesn't give a huge amount away, but come on, this is Tommy Tiernan we're talking about. This is going to be an incredible, thought-provoking, and above all else, hilarious night of comedy. Or should I say, 11 nights of comedy because Tommy is playing on January 5th, 6th, 7th, 13th, 14th, 15th, 20th, 21st, 22nd, 26th and 27th of January 2017. 11 nights of comedy by Tommy Tiernan in uh, Vicker Street coming up. So tickets are €35 and are on sale right this very moment from Ticketmaster.ie. So go get on there and get yourself a ticket that's Tommy Tiernan coming to and staying for quite a while in Vicar Street Dublin this January 2017 that's the ad and now on with the show hello and welcome to the WGM a podcast all about creativity with the mainly Irish bent uh, is the only way I can describe that. Not the catchiest of tagline, but it, it'll do for the moment. I'm Shane Langan. Uh, no Neil Conlon today. He's away on Delorento's business. Delorento's is the band that he's in, and they have business that he has to participate in, which means that it's just me this week, which is fine. That's fine. I don't feel any sort of resentment or anything towards him about that, no. Although it, although it is quite a sad sight to see me here, I have to say. I'm sitting alone, small room, talking to myself. I can't, I, can't, I can't even turn on the light because when I do, there's an electric, electric current creates a little buzz on the audio track, so I'm in the dark too. Um, quite, quite a grim picture that, I, that I'm glad you're being spared of, listener, by, by the very nature of a podcast. Anyway, uh, this is series three. No, no real fanfare or anything like that preceding things. It's sort of like a surprise series three. Surprise! Here's some new shows. Uh, and, and indeed, we've got lots of wonderful interviews lined up and fascinating with fascinating artsy folk, as well as plenty of brilliant live performances, sort of poetry, spoken word, music, everything you'd expect from the the WGM. We're pivoting away from saying weekly GM, so we're not bound to so we're not bound to be on every week in the future. Maybe we could go fortnightly potentially. We're leaving that wide open, so we're pivoting towards WGM. I said, I said, the guys, don't worry, the listeners won't even notice. Uh, unless I pointed out which I've just done anyway uh, uh, also also this series we're going to be experimenting a little bit with the format we're going to be trying one or two new little things uh, which we hope you'll enjoy Uh, in any way any case what you can expect from us every week for the moment is 30 to 40 minutes of vaguely artsy fun Uh, so that's a guarantee but that's coming up what about this week Shane well Shane yeah, podcasting on my own for three minutes I'm already co-hosting with myself uh, not a lone wolf not a natural not lone wolf by any stretch uh, well Shane uh, this week we have a chat with two of Ireland's brightest up and coming literary stars don't we yes Sarah Maria Griffin and Dave Rudden Sarah is the author of the new sci-fi novel Spare and Found Parts while Dave is the creator of the hugely successful new Knights of a Borrowed Dark series and they stopped by one of our live shows several weeks ago to have a chat with Neil on stage. And here it is. Enjoy. Oh. And um, yeah, and we're going to have a chat here. Hi, John here. 
thank you. Uh, we were talking outside about how nervous we were about doing this section of the show. So, strap in. Um, yeah, so, I, I wanted to ask you uh, loads of the obvious questions that happen in Q&A, things like this, but then I was thinking that I'd just be second-guessing what I think the audience want to hear. So more specifically, if you don't mind, I want to ask you questions that I want to hear answers to. Cool. Okay. First of all, why, why become a writer? What made you think that that was a, a thing that you could do with your life? That's real. Oh, <laughs> um, I totally didn't until I met Griff. Uh, I was obsessed with books as a kid, but I thought to be a writer, you had to be either English or dead. Uh, <laughs> But at the same time, I was this, I was this kid who, like, I was, like, the, the, the eight-year-old used to come into school. I come from, a, like, there are more people in this room than there are in the village that I come from in Cavan. And uh, I was that kid who used to come in and be like, oh, my God, did anyone see Star Trek last? No, no, okay, cool. Um, and so I never thought you could, like, tell stories and stuff. And then I didn't know how you went from 13-year-old drawing monsters in your copybook to actually being a writer. And then I met Griff, and she told me, give me advice and stuff. Well, yeah, I, that, that, we got, the, the, that's where the real story of that is more me and Dave getting absolutely hammered on, in a pub on Camden Street and being like, let's make things up for a living. Let's find out a way to do this. But I wrote since I was a kid as well, similarly. I, well, I'm from Dublin and uh, was still weird as all hell as a child and read constantly and voraciously, played a lot of video games, was obsessed with storytelling and wrote like compulsively. But in school, I had a really disapproving English teacher who just thought that I had notions and uh, in college I also had lecturers who thought I had notions and I was pretty much faced at every turn with people who were like it is absolutely hilarious that you want to do this that's very funny you need to get over yourself and what happens to me when people do that to me is I go well fuck you I'm gonna do it anyway so I'm much less of a uh, like safety pins in my nose kind of rebel and more of a I'm going to quietly squirrel away and work my whole off until something happens kind of rebel so um it's what I always wanted to be when I grew up and I'm fortunate enough to have met people along the way who want to talk about it and want to, like, and don't want to do it alone, you know? G given how well, obviously, things have worked out for both of you and it is really exciting, it's brilliant, it's re it really is fantastic. What were the years leading up to that like? I mean, I can only imagine that, I mean, Sarah, obviously, you moved to San Francisco, you did a show with us the week that you were leaving. Yeah, gosh. And, um, and that was really sad because I don't, uh, like, we obviously didn't, we didn't all know each other or anything, but the way you put it at the time, you were like, there's droves of people from your class at school just leaving, you know, flight after flight after flight. Um, and... That must have been a difficult situation, being abroad and trying to make it work in San Francisco. Dave, you were in Dublin trying to do the same thing. Are there any similarities in your experiences over those couple of years? I mean, more than more than a couple of years. Yeah, it was. I mean, I feel like the be. It was. It's, what were we? Were we like twenty one when we first started? Um, it was two thousand and ten. Whoa! So oh, whatever yeah. age I am now, minus yeah. that. Twenty one. Twenty one. Yeah. Twenty one. Wow, that's kind of insane. But I think you you stayed and you held in the fort and you did a masters. And that was like, like I don't, I don't know you. You wrote the first draft of the Borrowed Dark, Borrow Dark for for that, didn't you? Um, yes. I started off. I had no idea how one became a writer, and I started off with fan fiction. Uh, I started off with Warhammer Forty K fan fiction. For those of you who are interested, none of you are. And, um, <laughs> and I did that for 
I, I, I'd lurked on a site for a very long time when I said, like the first time I had a reliable internet connection was when I moved to Dublin. And um, I lurked on this website for ages and I put up a piece that was uh, inspired by Alkaline Trio's song, Burn. I was not a, not a cool person. Um, so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> uh, and I got a lot of like feedback. Some of it was like, you know, really tough. And it was the first time I'd ever shown anybody my own stuff. And one person left a comment saying, that's really great. When's the next one? I was like, the next one. <laughs> so for three, I scraped my degree in college. I like, for three years, I just wrote like fan fiction. And then I got used to, I got involved through Sarah and through other people. I got involved in the spoken word scene. I went to Milk and Cookies. I went to the Monday Echo and got used to like reading out in front of people and learning what worked and what didn't uh, by doing what worked and what didn't. And eventually it got to the point where I, I, I lived in Egypt for a year, uh, because, as you can tell by my magnificent tan. Um, I taught for a year over there and I'd been doing like, I had submitted a couple of things and some of them had done well and some of them hadn't. And I'd gotten, I'd done like the Monday Echo and this was before I'd even like done like the MGM. And I just said, okay, if I'm, if I'm going to do this, I have to go bigger go home. I have to like say, I'm, not, I'm completely undisciplined. I only write when it's easy and fun. I'm going to do the masters. If I get in, that's probably a good sign and I'll probably learn some stuff. So I was 25, I did the masters in UCD and our first assignment was to write the first chapter of a novel, which I thought I was too young to do because I didn't have an idea. I could sustain over 70,000 words and I wrote it and then I just kept writing it. Um, yeah, what about? Yeah, I think I... I also started out in the spoken word and performance community. I was, uh, I started, I think I was, I was an intern at a magazine that ran every day in the Dublin Fringe Festival in 2009 called O Fringe, which was a spinoff of O Francis, which was a magazine not unlike Mongrel, if any of you guys remember that. O Francis was like its sister and it came out in a broadsheet and uh, Emma Dwyer, who, who has the same birthday as me, published me when I was 19. And I owe her a massive debt still because she was the first person who looked at something I wrote and didn't say you have notions and then I became their intern um, for the fringe and across the road from the offices that we were inhabiting was the exchange which is just which is now an Italian restaurant but for several years was a performance space and in there I met some people who were starting a storytelling night and I was like storytelling I like storytelling I love stories and from getting involved there and telling stories and performing poems on stage I I, I guess I just kept writing and didn't stop. And unlike Dave, I did have a terrible ego at 24. And when I was living in America, I started writing about my experience, uh, which wasn't 100% pleasant, which was com complicated, which was nuanced of living in the States. And the Irish Times picked up a couple of the pieces from it, um, from the, the stuff I was writing. And uh, that turned into a book of nonfiction essays called Not Lost, which got published by New Island Press in 2013. So I came to fiction via nonfiction. And this, the novel that I read, mumbled and read to you from, um, was great. Is, was really, really is something I've been working on for much longer than all of this. I've been working on it since I was, I mean, I wrote Not Lost in a year, all the while cheating on it with the novel that I read to you guys from. And this feels different. This feels, feels like a heavier hammer. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been a very, very long way. And without living abroad, I never would have had the first book and certainly by no means would have ever had the second book the second book is about alienation and feeling displaced and not being able to connect to people and there's no better way to figure that out than to go and live in america for a while <laughs> so 
yeah, I think that's kind of roundabout. But, 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 drifting. It is. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but, but both of you, we, we would have come across you on the spoken word circuit, and, and Sarah in particular, like we would have seen you uh, and poetry nights. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you think that performing live influenced how you wrote or how you went about writing? Oh, absolutely, yeah, 100%. Um, the first story I ever told of Milk and Cookies was... Oh a sh- God, is this the- is so funny. This <laughs> is- <laughs> you think so. But it's... Uh, uh, it was fun fr- for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and no one in the audience. Um, <laughs> so I, I've, I've been writing like like fan fiction for years and then I decided to write like an original piece and it was a piece about a guy whose daughter is very ill and every night he goes up to her and he like everything has to be perfect the dinner is perfect and he looks her dead in the eye and he lies to her and he tells her about the amazing future she's going to have you know yesterday she was going to be a pirate now she's going to be a princess and they both know she's lying or he's lying but the important thing is his performance and at the end she says thanks dad and it was I was really proud of the story and I thought okay I'll go and I'll tell that so I learned it off um, and I went to Milk and Cookies and the two things I didn't know about Milk and Cookies was firstly I didn't know what you did at the end did you bow did you did you like whatever um, did you like nod I don't know and uh, the second thing I didn't know was that the nights are themed um, <laughs> So this night, because uh, I was late, so I didn't know, was a truth or fiction night where you got up and you told your story and afterwards the uh, audience clapped if they thought it was th- true and then clapped if they thought it was false. And I got up and I was so nervous that I stuttered and I stammered and I looked at my feet and I didn't know what to do at the end, so I just ran off stage. Dead silence on the audience. One girl at the front, oh my God. And the MC got up and said, oh, Jesus, dude, um, oh, obviously we're not going to ask if that was true or false or not. <laughs> and, I, and I had to say, no, no I, I, I made it up. Um, and I was walking was out. Tangible, like the whole room was like, what? <laughs> like, it was and I, wa- I walked out and, and, and I was like, God, I hope no one, th- oh my God, did people think I was playing the sick child card? <laughs> and this guy walked by me and went, yeah, you prick. And I was like, <laughs> So then I just told funny stories about stupid things I've done for girls. Um, it totally informs the way that I write. Uh, I used to teach as well, and kids give you 10 seconds. If you don't walk out in front of a bunch of kids and you are, you're immediately funny or terrifying, they just stop caring. So like that's, I read out everything that I write uh, while I'm writing it to make sure that it like lands well and that you're not like serious for too long or like that like the, there's a rhythm to the sentences and that really, really informs like what I do because you always have to think of your audience. Yeah, same. You're not really up there for yourself. A storyteller called Claire Murphy said this to me once that when you're performing, there's a triad of responsibility. There's you, there's your work and there's the audience and each of those things have to be in balance. You have to do the same honor to your work as you do to the audience and then hopefully the last line will connect and your work will there will will like honor your audience or whatever and i i also do the same thing me and Dave are just two people who sit at home alone reading things aloud to ourselves in the silence i read everything aloud before i write it and i tend when i'm giving readings even of fiction to do slam poetry voice which is an impulse that i have not gotten rid of from what's, my what, what's that slam poetry voice where everything you read is like this and it's just every uh, no matter what i could read the back of a cereal box and it would come out kind of like this because that's just my default performance voice so even if i'm reading fiction it comes out in poem voice for whatever reason so um yeah no i think i think reading things aloud when you're writing them is vital because that's 
it's your voice in someone else's head. It's a massive responsibility. If someone else is going to read your work, they're going to hear the things that you're saying in their own internal space. So by reading it aloud, you proof it for bum notes and for good cadence and for harmony. And you can hear something that's not right way quicker that way yeah. rather than having to kind of study it and, and look for visual. I don't know. I feel like it's very aural, all of it, isn't it? Surely. Also, rep, like good. For, I'm proofing um, book two at the minute, and I'm reading it to to somebody. And um, you you really note the repetition. Mm-hmm. So like I would go, and then the jagged, and then the ja- and you like keep reading. And it's like no, no, oh, I have to. Make a note. I'm the same. I'm just like, and the kitchen counter was a ghost, and also the smile was a ghost, and also the cup of tea was a ghost. Everything on the next six pages is a ghost. Okay. Because like yeah, because you just you get into these ma- like I don't know about you, but I get into these things where I just I find a word and I'm like oh that's gorgeous I'm going to put that everywhere <laughs> oh it's going to it's be it's all th- perfect it's themed it's themed and then my editor gets back to me and is like Sarah you've literally used the word tender 500 times in this book you need to fucking chill so <laughs> reading it out loud lets you kind of slap yourself on the wrist before you get like too in love with yourself or whatever <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah. I wanted to know how you found since since like releasing these books um you have to develop a new skill set entirely, which is like doing more professional interviews um, than this. But (laughs) selling your work, you know, and selling yourself, because people don't necessarily know who you are. And it's a problem that a lot of authors face and some people shirk away from it and they're happy enough. How have you found that change over the last year? That's real. Like that is very, it's... It's funny how I feel at a certain point in history, it was enough for an author to just be like, I lived in a garret for eight years and I produced this masterpiece from my blood and hair. And everyone's like, oh, you're such a genius. Oh my God, how much did you drink? And maybe, maybe if you send them a letter asking them how much they drank, the author will be like, eight pints of whiskey a day. Fuck yourself. And you'll be delighted by that letter. Whereas now you have to like have a brand and a presence and all this other stuff by which publishing houses can sell your work because that is how the market works. There's this bizarre compromise between spending a bunch of time in complete silence by yours, except for your own voice, <laughs> making an 80,000 word piece of work and then, the, which is, for me anyway, it's just like extracting fibers of yourself and trying to turn them into something that hopefully other people can relate to. Um, and then you also have to be like palatable and, and, and visible and 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 like attractive to people and then the internet is handy for that especially places like Twitter where you can just go and be like I drank eight pints of whiskey today lol winky emoji and people will think that's real cute Steven Universe gif Steven Universe gif or whatever you know like you can you can be visible online in a way that was helpful but it it, it does feel like compromise sometimes where I just want to go and make my art in the corner you know yeah it's um it's a weird one I it's something that I thought about a lot. Um, the book sold, or the, the deal sold, like, I guess, it's February, it was my birthday, it was February 13, 2014. Um, and uh, I had, I had to sit down and have a real think because uh, I'm a teacher, or I was a teacher, and like, you never really stop being a teacher. Like, you, I see kids giving each other piggybacks and go, stop that, you'll fall. And then realize, I've shouted at two strangers. Um, but, but I had to, but I, I write for, I write, like, not that I feel I write for kids. I, I try and write good things because um, that's, you shouldn't, like, people who write for, for, oh, I write for kids. Like, I get a lot of people going, oh, I write for kids because I'd, lo- like, I'd love to write for kids because I think it'd be easier. And it's like, you stand in front of 400 kids and say that. You won't get, like, they'll eat you alive. Um, but you do have to 
not exactly censor yourself because none of the horror from the book or the language got censored and I was really pleased with that. Uh, not the, like the, 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 the prose, not the actual, like there's no swears in the book. Anyway, anyway. No cussing. Loads of light bulbs, no cussing. Yeah. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> but one of the things I had to like sit down and have a think about is that like I have... Um, I suffer from depression and I have had like rough times over the years and I was like how much of that do you share because like and I was really worried going into because it's sold nearly three years ago and the PR and all that kind of stuff only really started six months ago so I was like what do I tell them do I have to lie do I have to like are they going to realize that because of like things I've gone through or who I am or whatever I might I'm not a good prospect or a good brand and luckily and wonderfully uh Puffin uh well they brought me into a room and they sat me down they were like okay we're your PR team tell us everything and I was like you have such good teeth oh my god um Everyone in publishing in London is a beautiful person called Anthea. And Seriously, every like, single one of them. It is uh, like an army of these floral, like Laura Ashley creatures. They're amazing, amazing women. And, like, and amazingly competent and, and um, yeah. like just brilliant. And I am uh, inexpertly shaved orangutan. And I... <laughs> So I'm sitting with these people and I was like, I showered two minutes ago. Why are you so sweaty? Why am I so sweaty? Um, and they were like, tell us everything. And so I did. I told them about, I was bullied in school and I told them about being from a small uh, town and, and I told them about things I'd gone through and like, like my arms are covered in scars. And I like, I, as a teacher, long sleeves all the time, that's fine. But like, I can't do that for the rest of my life because I'm big and I sweat a lot. So, sorry, this is so sherry. Um, Everyone sit on the floor. And they, <laughs> and they just went, yeah. okay, is that something you want to talk about? And I was like, yeah, I want to talk about mental health and I want to talk about these things because with teen, like there are great writers who talk about it with teenagers, but like also twelve and twelve and eleven year olds aren't maybe teenagers. But also, it's a thing that it's a thing I want to talk about. And they went, "Cool, we will work out how best to do that that protects you." And I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." So, so the the you do have to make yourself into a brand. You have to like be, you have to be fun. You have to always be thinking about how your audience are picking up what you're saying. But like, you can also be yourself a little bit yeah, as well. Yeah, you can kind of you can if they're if they're gonna like disembowel you for money then at the same time you can use that to help like to be helpful or to be good or to be sound in some way like the first conversation I had on the phone with my editor one of the things she said to me was god it's very feminist the book and I was like I'm not saying that with any any disgust in your voice this is this this could be the beginning of something good and with the mad insane privilege it is to get to make work like this and to get to make work for, to get to make books for a job get, going, going back to the first chats that me and David never had in Flannery's my god um we snuck we in a like, bottle of vodka because we couldn't afford drinks it was very bad but we it's a it's a bizarre job and I I definitely hold on to every single week of getting to deal with it like I may never get a week like that again but with that comes and with all my kind of griping about being palatable at the same time you do get to have a chat to readers and if they're going and if you if you get to be a person who's visible to readers then maybe you can give them something else as well as the art do you know so many great artistic heroes of mine have turned out over the years and been to be monstrous and have revealed themselves to be terrible and so many powerful men who make incredible work also turn out to exploit that power and, and do terrible things with it and something that i take from situations like that like woody allen or whatever is well maybe go out and be better than those mutants Maybe go out and do make good art, but also be sound. And that's something I take hope in, in terms of being 
a gal on the internet or a person as well as a book. And that's, uh, yeah, I think that's the, that's the thing Dave was saying as well. It's like, if, you're, if they're going to talk to you about stuff, well, be useful, you know? But do you get much of a chance to interact with people that have seen you perform or have written or have read what you've written? You do more with me by now at this point, for sure. Yeah, like I, I do a lot of, I do a lot of schools, I do a lot of libraries. Uh, I've been lucky enough to do like a few of it. I did like a, a UK tour, which was hilarious because I'm, I'm so used to like showing up at a, like I've been doing events for a long time and I, I'm used to showing up like maybe in like an hour beforehand doing all my own photocopying for workshops, like having people going, who are you? It's like, I'm doing the thing. And they're like, all right, the tea's over there. And it's like, okay, cool, thanks. Um, whereas when I went on tour, I just showed up and they were like, here's your clicker, here's your mic, here's the projector, everything's been sound checked, here are the children, here are the post-its on the book that tell you their names, sign. And I go, cool, okay. Um, and I, lo- I, look, I love having the chats with kids because they're, they're just hilarious and brilliant. I had a kid come up to me and go, do you shave your sideburns? <laughs> um, yeah. They're nice. <laughs> and, he, and he just walked off. And I was like, I also wrote a book. Oh. Um, but yeah, and like it's like that's that's what I'm in it for. Is like I do a lot of like like I do the events and we have like questions at the end. And so many kids are like, I really want to write a book. Can I write a book if I'm a kid? Can I? I had a kid go, Can I write a book if I'm dyslexic? And I was like, Yes, of 100% you can. And like just getting like I come from a tiny village and we didn't have writers in because there weren't a lot of writers around and getting to tell kids they can do because it's not if it was difficult I wouldn't be able to do it and like telling them they can is like it's the best part of the job because like as much as yeah n- knowing that like, I, I was over at Hay Festival and this kid showed up to get his book signed and it was read to shit it was falling apart and the book's only been out two months so I haven't seen a book like that and I was like Oh, hey. And he was like, I liked your book. And I was like, I, I could see that. Were you chewing on it? Amazing. So that's, that's, it's so great. It's brilliant. I'm like in the preliminary days where I'm actually on the complete opposite end of that. Um, my, my, I only got like 10 advanced reader copies of the book, which I kind of have carefully dispensed to people. No one has read it yet. And I am in that weird, terrible phase of being like, oh God, what if it is like not even rubbish but the water at the bottom of the bin you know what if it is what if it is the worst thing that's ever happened so there's there's concern and because it is not coming out in Ireland until a to be determined date it's coming out in America first I have this bizarre detachment from it that this whole continent is going to get that book and I don't live on that continent anymore so I'm experiencing this in a really deeply abstract way, but I'm also writing my second novel, which is a wonderful distraction. They, 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 oh my God, I yelled at the mic, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maybe this is the one that has like, has like clean on it as well. Um, it's a great distraction to be able to write a second book. They, they, they gave me two. The first one was Bear and Vampires, and the second was Untitled Griffin Novel. Um, no pressure. Oh yeah, no pressure at all. It's gonna be fine. So I'm, I'm still living in a liminal space um, before people know, but with Not Lost, um, I get an email regularly, regularly, uh, once or twice a month from someone abroad, which is a wonderful thing, who has managed to come upon a copy of Not Lost and like reaches out and says, hey, or a tweet or, or, or slides into the DM or, or tags on an Instagram of someone's copy of it on a beach somewhere. And, that feels warm. That feels like something I was on in a sheer at Drop Everything a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's my body, it's close enough to body. I'm still recovering from that one. Couldn't do body and soul. Um, and I was sitting with my feet in a rock pool in this blistering 
insane midday sun, completely dehydrated, having traveled across the country from 6 a.m. and was like nursing a can of Heineken and like just crisping up. And I'm chatting to this couple beside me about the rock pool. And the girl leans over and just goes, sorry, are you Sarah Griffin? And I was like, yeah. And she had been living in San Francisco. But yeah, so she had read the book and we, we talked about it for a minute. And that book came out three years ago. And in person, it just, I don't, I don't meet people in person who've read it. And it was a really, really powerful thing that she was in a similar situation to mine and had come upon the book and had felt even compelled to lean over and tap my leg and go, hey, I see you. And that's, yeah, that's something. I'm going to try this now. Oh, that's way louder, isn't it? Yeah, there's something, so something sorry. spooky about it. <laughs> sorry. Um, well, I, I wanted to ask you, Sarah, in particular, since you've moved back, you're one of the like wave of people that have started to come back to Ireland, to come back yeah. to Dublin. Have you found that it changed? Yeah. A lot? How? It changed, it's changed enough. to. It feels like there's something of the heat gone down. Um, I know that the recession isn't gone away for everybody, and to say that it's gone away is a brutally, like, it's a very stupid and blinkered thing to say because the housing crisis is, is obscene and things are still not right. But there's, there's a warmth. People are looking up or something. It's, it's so hard to tell because I, I live in a bubble and I know that not all of Dublin is recovering in the way that sort of post-grad arty Dublin is recovering. <coughs> One thing I've noticed really specifically is it feels like California has come in on the wind, that there are tiny coffee shops opening. We're real into donuts right now. <laughs> like there are these trappings of, of the things that I would have experienced. People line up for brunch here now. <coughs> I went, to, I went to San Francisco and I was just what? to visit uh, Sarah yeah. and, and I was disgusted at the idea. I was like, it's just breakfast. Yeah. What the fuck? And the thing is, I was betting to it when I was over there. I was like, I'll stand in line for a couple of hours and I'll wait for this fabulous brunch and now I wouldn't be caught dead. But like, at the same time, I feel, I feel like the... I, during the Celtic Tiger, I was a teenager. I had three jobs. I was obsessed with the idea of working and, and, and like you know, saving and, and being a good, good like, being a, a good member of society, which is very funny because I'm not now. But I worked a lot as a teenager because there were jobs. And because if there was a job to be taken, you take the job. And that is where, that's where my work ethic lies. And in America, I wasn't able to work for a long time because my visa restrictions were so particular, so specific. And I, I nannied when my visas came through. Uh, I nannied a lot. And coming home and, and, and writing full time, I'm sort of, I feel like a bit of a fly on the wall because I'm not getting dressed every day to go to an, an office. I'm not applying for work. I'm self-employed in a very strange, fortunate bubble. And I think, I think we gotta be careful is what I feel like. I mean, support local businesses. Please God, support local businesses. Walk your truth, live your bliss, buy whatever coffee you want. But I do think, I do think there is something to be taken stock of here in that the recovery is affecting some people a lot more than it's affecting others and I mean that both ways so I uh, yeah it's different and I'm, I'm still figuring out how to place together the the components of how but it's feeling an awful lot like San Francisco and I'm not talking about flowers in your hair here I'm, I'm, I'm talking about about a, a, a class shift or a a divide growing between the wealthy and the poor. I think there's something to be listened to that's happening. And I, I wish I could tell you exactly what that is, but I think conscience is important here and kindness and empathy as always. So that's a roundabout way of saying, yes, it is different, but no, I'm not sure how. So yeah. 
it's real talk. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, like bringing everyone way down. Um, I think that's um, interesting because both of you have had very different experiences over the last couple of years in that like everything that you've talked about, you've witnessed firsthand in many ways, you know, the change. <clears throat> Sometimes it's harder to perceive things like that when you're on the ground, right? But um, how have you found that that period of time where you were beginning to be a writer, you were teaching, but that was one of the worst periods ever to become a writer or try and become a writer? Yeah, like I I taught in my old school um in from 2008 till 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 midway 2009 which was an interesting experience because i had only been like three years out of it and it was probably quite badly in school uh, but in the intervening years i did theater and grew a beard um and i remember going back and this kid who was in second year when i left i was now in fifth year the first thing he said to me was sir i know your first name and I just went, do you know what I'll do to you if you use it? And, uh, and I was like, oh my God, somewhere 15-year-old Dave is punching the air. Um, but yeah, it was like like um, at home in, 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 in Bon Boy, there's nobody. There is nobody between the ages of 18 and 20, 20, 29, 30. Like, every, like I, I would imagine of the 40 people who are in my Leave Insert year, I'd, I'd say at least 25 of them are in Australia. Like there just isn't, like, like as much as like, you really notice it in Dublin that a lot of people of a certain age are gone. Like, go to the country. Well, don't, don't. But like, go to like if if you if you like, there's just there's just nobody about. And like, if in the local nightclubs, you're either you're either fourteen or you're like thirty five. Like, that's just how it is. There there isn't anything at home. And like, um, yeah. But then you always see these like these fighters. You always see these like like in Dublin. Like, there's there's still like eight spoken word nights per night of a week in Dublin. There's always, no matter how broke as shit people were, no matter how uh, how much we were told we couldn't do, no matter how much funding is good, people still went and made stuff, even if they were just sticking things to walls. It was just, it was, it was great. And it, but like, yeah, I mean, my job got cut um, out of the school, and then I uh, I moved to Egypt for a year and. And came back and was was unemployed and and was on the dole and like tried to work uh, in different things, but I was either like too qualified, like not that I was too qualified as an arts degree, like not I wasn't qualified in anything. I was I had an, I had an arts degree, but like there wasn't like there just wasn't really anything to do. And I worked in bars and I and I saw people like holding down jobs in like who wanted to do things but couldn't because like what am I trying to say? you'd fight to get a job where you could work 15 hours a week and make less than being on the dole if you got dole. And, like, it just, it was so disheartening. And, like, only the fact that, like, when I was on social welfare, the actual people I was dealing with in the office were so nice. And whereas, like, just the system was just, like, stamping on you every chance. Anytime you tried to show initiative, anytime you tried to do anything, they're like, no, 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 like, this is, you can't, you can't, basically. So, I don't know. I don't know how coherent that was. But I feel the thing, the thing to do at that time is to make things, you know? When... When you can't get a job in the spire or you can't go and pull pints, you go and make things on your own. And so many people we know, and yourself obviously included in this, were like, well, if you're not going to give me something to do, I'm going to make something to do. And I think that is something that I watched happen from a distance. And it really heartened me, you know? It was just like, fucking yeah, make some shit. And it was you did, like, you yeah, did. It was very easy, to, like, art kept me going. It was very easy to feel worthless. Um, when you just weren't getting anywhere and you could interview. And I'm very bad at interviews um, in general, but like there just wasn't, like you knew as soon as you went in, you weren't going to get it. And um, 
get having that outlet of going to like the Monday Echo and and doing a five a ten minute slot and not obviously not getting paid for it or anything like that was it still it was like a ray of it it was hope it was really nice and like things have gotten a little bit better and like I was lucky that like I. I managed to like study writing and actually get like and have it be my job now and so that is a ridiculous privilege and responsibility but like doing those little bits and pieces did keep me going for a long time um, before we finish I, I wasn't going to necessarily ask if anybody wanted to ask questions um, but I've changed my mind so uh, didn't t- I t- told you guys I wouldn't ask people to ask questions but we're going to do it anyway um, does anybody have any questions for either Dave or Sarah um, in particular, like I know for me, like th- the one question that I wanted to ask, uh, well, I'm just asking a question. <laughs> oh, screw you, jerks. Um, sorry, no, thank you. you're very welcome. Um, <clears throat> the, the question I wanted to ask you both was given your journey, what's the one piece of advice for any creative person, be it a musician or a writer or a poet or, or a filmmaker, that, uh, that you feel holds true, taken in? To account your own experiences. Dave, we're probably both going to give like the same piece of advice. So what's your? What's your okay, no. What's your piece of advice? And I'll give one that likely leads on for that, or we can do the other way around. Mine is the rising tide lifts all boats. Oh, good. Cool. And that's something my dad said to me when I told him I was hanging out with a bunch of artists. Instead of him being like, "Please don't, please don't do this," he was like, "Look out for them." I think. The thing that's held the strongest for me is my community and the people, my friends, people I know who have kind of listened to me when I've had writing-oriented nervous breakdowns and read the things I've sent them when I'm worried. I think the people that you meet who make things like the things you make, regardless of what the things that you make are, be it theater or humor or internet stuff or poetry or writing or films, there will always be other people who make the things you make and who want to make things like the things you make. So why don't you just hang out with them? They're probably sound. You already have one thing in common. And I think finding that community was, I mean, even Jesus, is like getting, getting to do this as a job, like me and David, just like, my God, how is this our job? But getting a, 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 a book deal or making like a living isn't really what matters, like really. Like it's getting to hang out with people that you care about and who understand you. And that's how, why you pick up a pen in the first place is to fucking communicate. And what I would always say to people is find your people and watch those people because they'll start going up and you'll start going up with them and open the doors that you can for people and don't pull the ladder up once you're there. Make sure that you make room for people coming up. And I feel so strongly about that. The rising tide lifts all boats. That's my every time, every time. Um, I 100% agree with that. It's so true. Because like, on, a, on a practical level, no no art community is that big. People remember. People really remember who was kind and who wasn't. Like, I can only speak for, like, children's fiction because that's, that's where I am. But, oh, yeah, people like, like... Like, the people I've met in children's fiction have been the kindest and nicest people. And they're not doing it because it's good business. But you know, you remember who's nice to you. You remember who, like, did wasn't selfish... Like, Success is not a finite resource. Like you can, you can help other people up, and people remember that. And then when it comes to their turn, they will probably do it as well. And if they don't, they're not being kind. 
but that was that, that was your piece of advice. Um, my okay, I'm going to give two, and one is really short. Um, the first thing is uh, if you're if you if you're writing if you're writing a novel or poetry, there's a website called litrejections.com. Um, which is a database, it's a terrible name for a website. Um, it is a database of the 150 most reputable agents in the UK, the US, Canada, Germany, and Australia. And that's where I got my agent. And it's a really, really good resource and you should use it. Uh, it also has lovely letters from like writers who have been rejected from things. And it's like, it's very full of hope and stuff. Uh, so that's one. The second piece of advice I would give is that remove the mysticism from art. It's not like, it's not this magical, like people always say, you know, where do your ideas come from? As if you have to go to a special cave and tickle a kitten until it gets sick. And <laughs> that's not what you have to do. Um, if you want to, you can. Then you gently like, lick it. You know, uh, but right. you can. But you're, you Instagram while you're down there. <laughs> neither you or the kitten are going to get anything out of it. Um, <laughs> it's not, uh, you, you never have one big idea. I'm so sorry. You never have... <laughs> You're not you ne- sorry. You're not sorry at all. You never have one big idea that write, writes the book for you. Um, Night of the Borrowed Dark is about the kind of kid, is a kid in a fantasy book who has read fantasy books. And it's like, no, I don't even like sports. Leave me alone. Um, but that's not a book. That's not even a sentence. That's, there's no, like, uh, books are just thousands of ideas all moving in use and they're just small little things. Don't say, oh, well, I can only write when my room is tidy and this and and Sunkel Moon are playing. Remove that. Teach yourself how to write anywhere. Teach yourself that your work is going to be bad. Your first draft is going to be terrible and woeful. But that's why you have to do the book twelve times over before it gets good. Like Knights of the Bar Deck looks really shiny now. That's ten drafts. Yeah, mine of is like eleven. Like the whole thing beginning to end, just going through it with a fine tooth comb. Like it's first draft except except that it is garbage own it possess it and then write it again Tell, like what Terry Pratchett says the first draft is just you telling yourself the story allow yourself to be bad Don't, the amount of people I meet who have like I've written a really good first chapter and I just can't the second chapter is not as good and it's like I have never written a first chapter that didn't change based on the last chapter it is always going to be terrible even if someone shows up at your door and hands you a suitcase full of money they're going to make you redraft it like it was the fifth, fourth draft of Knights of the Borrowed Dark that got picked up. And my, um, my editor, Ben, is, he's lo- who's lovely, was like, I think it's very cute that you have called this Knights of the Borrowed Dark the final draft. Because here at Puffin, we would really consider this the first draft. I remember the day you got that email and I was like, what? What are they going to do I to can't. it? But at that point, did Simon even, they ca- the chapter you read, was that even in it at that point? Oh yeah, the, the, the light bulbs light. bit, which is by, by far and away my favourite bit of the book, is a sixth draft edition. Because they were like, give us more Simon. I was like, cool, I'll make him watch a woman eat light bulbs. Because <laughs> I'm a prick. Um, <laughs> let, like, r- the work gets done. If you want to write, make yourself write. Don't wait for it to come to you. Don't wait for it to be easy. Don't wait for it to be good. Hammer that shit down and then try and fix it. Don't try and be judging creator all at once. Just write. Just absolutely do it. Like books in potential and like, you know, I have a really great idea for a book isn't a book, you know? And things are so much prettier when they're potential. It's like your bank balance, you know, Dylan Moore and all that. But like, get it down. Like the, the, the work gets done. Um, but yeah, that, that was eight pieces of advice and a terrible story <laughs> <laughs> all in one. Hey, we'll, we'll cut it in the edits. It's fine. Yeah. Nope. It's staying in. <laughs> and a big thank you, of course, to Sarah, Maria Griffin and Dave Rudden for stopping by and chatting to Neil for us. Absolutely fantastic. I uh, hope you enjoyed that chat. Um, actually, both Dave and Sarah 
are part of uh, another podcast that has recently launched, which I would like to draw your attention to. Um, Graham Tugwell is a wonderful writer. He is a former WGM guest. If you go back into our, um, it was, a, it was the, the WGM extra we did. We only ever did one, and it was uh, one of Graham's stories. Fantastic, brilliant, vivid, and disturbing story by Graham and but well anyway he's got a new uh, podcast where he's written all these stories and it's called Down Below the Reservoir and uh, Dave Dave and Sarah are part of the cast on it it's, it's Ireland's first scripted fiction podcast I believe and so if you're into into American podcasts like Welcome to Night Vale or Lime Town or anything like that you're going to really love this one um, they're on episode 2 right now and I'm absolutely hooked uh, so yeah it's, it's just really unsettling and horrific and amazing uh, so check it out it's called Down Below the Reservoir wherever you get your podcast get that um, so that's it for this week's show thanks to Eilish Bracken for producing no thanks to Neil Conlon for not turning up back to yes thanks for um, to Emma Butt for mixing and editing today's show uh, and also a big thanks to our sponsors Aiken Promotions for sticking with us despite everything I'm Shane Langan I've been your host today I'll be back next week with Neil Chat to you then.